Welcome to The Mushroom Show, the one place where you need to be if you want to stay on top of all the cool things happening in the world of mushrooms. My name is Tony Shields, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the curious case of colorblindness that was apparently cured with mushrooms, opening up a wider discussion about the potential for these mushrooms to be useful for more than anyone could ever imagine. We're also going to be talking about the first licensed healing center that will be opening up in Oregon, which kind of gives us a glimpse at how a legalized model might work and whether or not the pricing structure really makes sense. Finally, since I don't think mushroom hunting should be scary, we're going to be looking at the top five mushrooms that are pretty easy to identify if you want to head out there in the spring, summer, and fall. So if you like mushrooms, if you like the mushroom show, please take a second to go ahead and hit that like button. It really helps get the show out to more people. And if you want to see future episodes of the show, make sure you hit that subscribe button as well. It really helps the channel grow. Let's jump into the show. On to our first story. Now, I saw this article come across my feed, and it says, Doing shrooms might have improved a man's colorblindness, doctors say. A man's experiment with psilocybin-containing mushrooms seemingly left him with long-lasting improvements in his red-green vision. Now, at first glance, you might think that this is a pretty wild headline, it's a pretty outlandish claim, but I think as we dig in a little bit deeper, you'll see that it's not as outlandish as it seems. So the article says, In a paper this week, doctors describe a man who experienced modest, long-lasting improvements in his red-green color vision after a single dose of psilocybin-containing mushrooms. It also says the report is only an anecdote. At this point but should merit further research the authors say. Now like anything else in this space this is just an anecdote but anecdotes aren't necessarily wrong they just might not be as good as double-blind placebo-controlled trials. This story here it's not just somebody who did mushrooms once and thought that their vision got a little bit better after a trip. There's actually some pretty good science here which we'll see when we dig in. Now before we get into this specific case study I should note that both this article and the case study reference a global survey that was done in 2017 that reported improved colorblindness symptoms from a number of people who use not just psilocybin, but other psychedelics as well, such as LSD. Again, lots of anecdotes in this global survey, like one person who reported, all my life I suffered from red dichromacy, which is a type of colorblindness. After psilocybin, I viewed Monet's San Giorgio Maggiore at dusk, a painting which I had previously seen as a dull mass of brown and blue. All of the colors I was previously unable to see were there on the screen, and the emotion that I felt made me unable to speak for about a half an hour. Now, it might not be all that surprising for people to report their vision being more vibrant during a psilocybin experience, but what if that vision remained improved for days or maybe even months after the experience was over? Well, researchers with a new study published in Drug Science believe they have the first real data to actually support these findings. So here is the case study. It says case report prolonged amelioration of mild red-green color vision deficiency following psilocybin mushroom use. And the subject here was a 35-year-old male who did have lots of previous experience with psychedelics, although he hadn't used mushrooms for a period of three years before this case study. Now, right before he ingested the mushrooms, he self-administered this thing called the Izahara test. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically it is a standard test for determining if there are any color vision deficiencies. And basically you just cycle through a bunch of images that show a number made of colored dots inside of a circle made of other colored dots, and you try to determine what that number is. If you have some sort of color blindness, it'll be hard to resolve what that number is and you'll get a low score on the test. 
Whereas if you don't have colorblindness, you can see the numbers easily and you'll get a high score on the test. So Mr. Anonymous, prior to ingesting the mushrooms, does this test and he gets a score of 14, which according to the test does represent a mild form of colorblindness or CVD as they call it in the paper, color vision deficiency. He then ingested five dried grams of psilocybin containing mushrooms, which is quite a large dose. And for some reason they specifically call out in the paper that he did not have a mystical experience during the trip, but nonetheless, 12 hours after ingesting the mushrooms, he did this color vision deficiency test again. This would have been, you know, after most of the acute effects of the mushrooms wear off, and he found that he scored 15 out of 21 versus 14 out of 21. So a one point improvement in his color vision deficiency 12 hours after ingesting the mushrooms. Really not that interesting. But here's the interesting part. He did the test again 24 hours later and found that his score had continued to improve, reaching 18 out of 21, which is indicative of no color vision deficiency. And perhaps even more interesting, he did the test once again eight days later and found that his score had improved even further to 19 out of 21, which is where he reached his maximum score on this test. So Mr. Anonymous kept testing his vision over time and found that even four months after the initial ingestion of five grams of psilocybin mushrooms, his color vision score was 18 out of 21. So again, substantially higher than the original baseline. So what, if any, is the conclusion here? Can we say that psilocybin containing mushrooms are a cure for colorblindness? Pre-mushroom to post-mushroom, the subject went from being clinically colorblind to having no color vision deficiencies, or as the researchers put it, the subject experienced a quantifiable partial improvement in his color vision deficiency lasting for at least 16 days, which led to a reclassification of mild color blindness to normal color vision. What the researchers hypothesize is that psilocybin is doing nothing to improve the eyes, right? Because color blindness is caused by a lack of certain pigments in the photoreceptors of the eyes. So instead, psilocybin is affecting the way that those signals from the eyes are being interpreted in the brain. And in this case, psilocybin is improving the brain's ability to differentiate between what might be weak signals coming down the optic nerve and allowing for more fidelity, more resolution. And again, intuitively, this does make a lot of sense because people who are on low doses of psilocybin will report sharper vision or heightened visual acuity. Now, directly from the paper, they postulate a possible mechanism of action saying that psilocybin appears to increase the amplitude of visual evocation P1 potential in the lower level processing areas of the visual pathways in the occipital cortex, which has been shown to reflect increased activity in early visual area V1. Now, two things I wanted to note about this article. First of all, it really highlights the completely untapped potential of psilocybin and makes me wonder how many more things like this we're going to discover in the future. Because it's not just vision. Lots of people have reported nerve benefits from psilocybin, including one person who says that psilocybin mushrooms were a major factor in improving their paralysis. This article was published a little while ago in Outside Magazine, and it tells the story of an adventurer, Jim Harris, who was unfortunately paralyzed from the chest down because of a snow kiting accident. Now he was obviously going through lots of therapy and surgeries as part of his recovery, but apparently the biggest jump happened while he was at a music festival. So he was there enjoying the music and not wanting to drink alcohol because he didn't want to damage his nerves any further. So instead he ended up eating some psilocybin containing mushrooms 
And there was a moment where he commandeered an acquaintance's padded knee scooter so he could rest one leg at a time and still sway to the music. In the middle of the switch, he discovered that he could pick up his right foot and pull it back down towards his butt. He tapped his right hamstring with his finger and the muscle contracted, a muscle that had been completely unresponsive since his injury, even in the low gravity environment of a pool, despite eight months of physical therapy. It continues, the next morning, Harris woke up afraid he'd imagined the whole thing, or that he'd lost his newfound ability while he slept, but this hamstring was still firing. The neuromuscular connection that had formed the night before wasn't going anywhere. The article goes on to compare physical therapy to psilocybin, noting that there are some similarities. For example, psilocybin could exercise certain neural pathways much the same as physical therapy does. It says, physical therapy uses repetitive movements to rebuild damaged neural pathways and create new ones, which can increase neuroplasticity and neurogenesis just like psychedelics. And it's not just psilocybin, I should say. There are lots of mushrooms that have huge potential for neurogenesis. One obvious one is lion's mane, which has been studied for this, but also lots of people have used it with similar anecdotal reports of these rebuilding neural pathways or rebuilding nerves after using lion's mane. One really interesting one that also involved vision, I once spoke on the phone to somebody who was blind. They had been blind for over two decades as a result of a medical accident. And they had heard about lion's mane and the potential nerve benefits. So they started taking lion's mane. And coincidentally, they started being able to see certain colors and shapes. Now, she was obviously thrilled and over the phone is pretty powerful. She was like crying, explaining this to me, what was happening and how amazing it was. And again, this is totally anecdotal and also correlation is not causation so there could be a lot of different things that might have caused this but at the same time it is feasible to think if certain mushrooms whether they be psilocybin mushrooms or different functional mushrooms could help to rebuild neural pathways it is at least scientifically feasible that something like this could happen now if you want to read the case study involving the colorblindness or if you want to check out the jim harris story i put both the links to those articles in the description below on to our next story. Now, Oregon's Measure 109, the measure that legalizes psilocybin in the state of Oregon, is now becoming a reality, with the Oregon Health Authority doling out licenses for facilitators, for testing labs, for manufacturers, and now for treatment centers. Earlier this month, the OHA issued the first license to a treatment center in Oregon, which means people over the age of 21 can now take regulated amounts of psilocybin under the supervision of trained facilitators. Now, keep in mind that this is all really new and chances are this is gonna look a lot different in a few years than it does now. Oregon really took a big leap here to try and be the first to figure it all out. But I think the thing that people are starting to realize is that not everything is gonna make a lot of sense. Now, we did do a video on this when the rules were first kind of rolling out and becoming finalized. And looking through all of the costs for the facilitators and the cost for the licenses and the manufacturing, I think the highlight was this, this is, is going to be, be pretty, pretty expensive. expensive. And as it turns out, yes, this is going to be pretty expensive, even more so than I thought originally, especially for low doses. 
I saw this price list, which is the first available price list for these services, and I shared it on Twitter and it got quite the reaction. Now, to be clear, I understand that the framework for which these healing centers have to operate is why these prices are the way they are, but I just can't imagine, for example, anyone wanting to pay something like $500 for a microdose, something that is said to be sub-perceptual, and most people find the benefits of doing it over longer periods of time rather than one acute experience. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me and it doesn't make a lot of sense to other people. So although probably not everyone is going to agree in terms of how it's being facilitated or how the rules are being formed, hopefully it's a net positive over time and this is a step in the right direction in terms of bringing the power of mushrooms to people who could benefit from it. In other licensing news, last week, Ohio State apparently received the first ever DEA license to grow psilocybin-containing mushrooms for research. Now, I posted this on Twitter, and I was informed that Ohio State is, in fact, not the first. There was other research labs, Hopkins Lab, and a couple others that actually already received DEA licenses in the past, but I still think this is notable for a couple of reasons. First of all, all the clinical trials that have been done so far have been done using synthetic psilocybin. It makes sense from a clinical perspective because it is a lot easier to be accurate on the dose and there are no other factors in terms of other compounds or people having to ingest the mushrooms or concentration, etc. And it just makes it a lot easier to get nice, clean clinical data. But growing mushrooms like this, and these are apparently to be grown for clinical trials, will hopefully allow for clinical trials to be done using whole mushrooms instead of this synthetic psilocybin, which will be kind of interesting because there are a lot of other compounds in the mushrooms like biocystin and orbeocystin and maybe perhaps an entourage effect of all these different compounds. The second reason I think this is notable and cool is because, you know, growing mushrooms has been illegal. So obviously a lot of the research on the actual mushroom hasn't really been done or has been much harder to do. So there isn't a huge body of knowledge. So hopefully doing something like this will allow scientists and researchers to more freely study these mushrooms. Now, they've done this in the past, obviously, but using things like samples of dried mushrooms that are from all over the world or you know people grow them and send them in and the data just isn't really that great and as we've seen in previous studies that have been done the variety of mushrooms and the level of active compounds in those mushrooms can vary pretty wildly so it will be interesting for the ability for researchers to just grow things in a controlled environment, study what compounds are in the mushrooms, maybe study different growing conditions and how that affects the levels of psilocybin, how drying the mushrooms affects the levels of psilocybin, all these things that people still don't really have a super clear picture of because research on these things has been illegal for so long, it will be cool to see more and more of that come into the light. So that might be a super optimistic view of what this means, but I still think it's pretty cool that um, scientists and researchers are going to be more free to study these amazing mushrooms. Now let's switch gears entirely here and talk about the fact that it's spring, which means we have a long summer and fall ahead of us being able to go out into the woods and look for wild mushrooms. It's one of my favorite activities, always fun to do, and even if you don't find anything, worst case scenario, you had a nice walk in the woods. But the idea of mushroom hunting tends to make people who have never done it before a little nervous. And fair enough, because yeah, some mushrooms are bad news. Some mushrooms, if you ate enough of them, can shut down your liver and it's all downhill from there. But those types of mushrooms, even 
though they do exist, aren't nearly as pervasive as most people think, and mushroom hunting doesn't need to be nearly as scary as most people think. So I thought it'd be fun to cover five wild mushrooms that you can go out into the woods and look for yourself. Now, a couple of caveats before we jump in here. First of all, you don't need to eat wild mushrooms that you find. It's still pretty fun to identify them, even if you only want to take a picture. And if you aren't certain of a mushroom's identity, under no circumstance should you eat it, because albeit low, there is a risk. So the best bet is always, when in doubt, throw it out. Second of all, it's always best to head out, not with a book, not with one of those mushroom identification apps that never work, but with someone who is experienced in mushroom hunting in your specific area. Obviously, if you know somebody in your area that you can go out with, that's great. If not, there are often lots of mycological societies who do kind of bi-weekly forays. You can probably go meet up with them and learn to identify your first few local mushrooms. First off is morels. Now, we did just do a whole segment about people who are trying to grow morels, but the vast majority of morel mushrooms are actually foraged from the wild. The best part about morels is that they're the first real good mushroom to show up in the spring. Now, depending on where you live, morel season could already be over or it could just be getting started. But morels, again, usually only show up in the early spring after the snow melts and once the soil reaches a certain temperature. Now, believe it or not, some people will go out into the woods with a probe to monitor the soil temperature and try to decide whether or not it's worth going to look for these things. But in general, morels will grow in all sorts of different habitats, and there are also lots of different species. Some can be found growing in landscape mulch, and others, like burn morels, for example, will show up in huge numbers in the first spring or two after a forest fire. But the headline here is that morels are super easy to identify. They have this pitted cap, which is key because there are others that have folds in the cap, but morels have a pitted structure. And when you cut them in half, they are hollow on the inside and the cap is perfectly connected to the stem. There is another mushroom that a lot of people who have never seen morels before think is a morel. It's called Verpa bohemica. It typically shows up earlier in the spring than true morels, but it really doesn't look like a morel at all. It has folds instead of pits, and it doesn't have that hollow stem. But again, it shows up a lot earlier than morels, so maybe people are just getting way too enthusiastic after a long winter. Next up is Shaggy Mane, or Caprinus comatus. Now, this is one of my favorite mushrooms to go out and find. Some people also call it lawyer's wig, although I've never heard anybody actually call it that, so who knows, but they are super easy to identify. They have this cylindrical egg-shaped head when they are young, but as they grow older, they have a distinct feature where they slowly degrade into this black inky goo. It's actually really cool to see. It's called deliquescing. Not sure if I'm saying that right because I've only ever seen it written, but it's a really neat thing to see. But that is why you don't see these ones at the grocery store or at the farmer's market is because they just have a really short shelf life. You can actually cultivate these ones pretty easily as well, but again, they're more often considered just a wild mushroom, although I have seen them at the store as a dried mushroom. Shaggy manes grow in all sorts of habitats, but most commonly on lawns and golf courses, and sometimes you can see them in huge fruitings, just like hundreds of fruiting bodies will pop up in a very short period of time, and it's cool if you find a field like this because you can see the mushroom in all different stages of growth. A couple of years ago, I did find a big field of shaggy manes, and we did do a full video on that if you want a deeper dive into this mushroom. Next up is oyster mushrooms, which could mean a lot of things because there are a lot of different species of oyster mushrooms, but these ones are probably as close as you'll get to a year-round mushroom because they can grow in spring, summer, and fall, and in some places, you'll even find them growing in the winter. 
So there are yellow oysters, pink oysters, blue oysters, gray oysters, the list really goes on and on. So if you're gonna go out, make sure you know the types that grow in your area. But the common one is simply called oyster, scientific name Pleurotus austriatus. They grow on dead or dying trees, they grow out the side, so typically don't have any stem or stalk to speak of, and in my experience are often found growing near bodies of water. Not sure why that is, if it's because of the humidity or the temperature profile, but that's what I've seen the most. Now, oyster mushrooms are often chock full of bugs. The bugs seem to get them as soon as they can. So if you're hunting oyster mushrooms, make sure you check that they're not full of bugs. And worst case scenario, you can probably find them bug-free at the grocery store. Next up are chanterelles, which are one of the most famous and one of the most desirable wild mushrooms of all time. And just like oysters, they come in a variety of different species, but in general, they are a top-tier edible that are relatively easy to identify. Chanterelles will grow in various habitats. I have seen them the most in semi-open areas of pine forests, and they can often hide themselves under pine needles and duff, so you may have to look around a little bit, but chances are if you do find one, you are about to find a bunch more, so take a look around. Chanterelles don't really have gills, which is one way to identify them. Instead, they have ridges. And it's another one of these things that is kind of hard to explain or even see in a book, but once you see it once in real life, it's hard to miss. Plus, they have this distinct smell, kind of like apricots, which is actually really nice. Now, it's kind of pointless to go out into the woods and look for chanterelles if you're in an area where they just don't grow. For example, for me, where I live, there's no chanterelles anywhere, so it'd be kind of pointless to go and look for them, you'd probably just end up being disappointed. But if you are in an area where they grow, 100% worth it to head out and see if you can find some. The good news is if you do find a spot where they grow, they'll quite often show up year after year, so you can just keep going back and getting your chanterelles. Finally, we have Boletus edulis, also known as the porcini, or hamburger bun of the woods. And these things can get absolutely enormous, although they have the same problem as oysters, actually probably even worse, that they get eaten up by bugs. So almost 100% of the time, if you find a big one, it will be full of bugs. But if you can get them young, they are one of the best mushrooms in the world. They have pores on the underside instead of gills, which is one identifying characteristic, but all of the boletes, as they are called, have this feature, so it's not the only identifying feature that you should use. The other giveaway is the netted pattern that they have near the top of the stipe under the cap. Again, it's one of these things that is hard to explain, but if you see it once, you won't likely mess it up again. I have actually seen one of these near me like once in 10 years, so they are not very common at all here, but in some places like the Rocky Mountains, they are very common. So if you are lucky enough to be able to head up into the mountains and find some of these mushrooms, I highly recommend it. So there it is, there's five mushrooms that are pretty easy to identify, but again, remember, you don't have to eat wild mushrooms that you find in the woods. It's still fun to just kind of build up your roster of mushrooms that you can identify, and the more you know, it just becomes that much more fun to go walking in the woods. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Mushroom Show. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you also to those who are watching the premiere live. We do this every other Tuesday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. So much fun to come on here and interact with the mushroom community. Again, if you like mushrooms, if you like the mushroom show, it would mean the world to me if you could hit that like button. It really helps get the show out to more people. And if you want to see future episodes of the show, make sure you hit that subscribe button as well. 
Also, if you want to interact in between episodes of the show, you can find me on Twitter at FreshCapTony. I hang out there interacting with the Mushroom community, doing research for the show, and just kind of having fun. So make sure you follow me there at FreshCapTony. Thanks again for watching, and we'll see you in the next episode.